Hello, and welcome to the Star Trek Academy, a podcast about the latest new episodes of Star Trek. Now, today we're going to look at Season 2, Episode 8 of Lower Decks, an episode entitled I Erectus. Your hosts are two of the Academy faculty members. I'm Dr. Rodney Cup, the philosophy professor. And I'm Dr. Michael Merrick. I'm the media professor. The best way to keep track of our new episodes and other announcements is to watch our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy. There's a pinned post there that has links to several different platforms for your podcast apps, or you can just go directly to anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy, and you can subscribe there. Rodney, I should note again this week, I'm not at my usual location. And as a result, I'm using a different microphone than usual. Uh, next week, everything should be back to normal for the foreseeable future. But today, there may be some audio quality differences between you and me. You've got a more expensive, better microphone than I'm able to use today. And that's why, just so so people know. All right. Well, you know, I, you know, I can hear a difference, but you know, the ideas, the ideas are coming through, Michael, and the ideas are good. Hopefully that will carry people. Yeah, I think it will. So why don't we go ahead and get started with our episode summary. And this week, Professor Merrick will have the honors. So Michael, take it away. Okay. The Cerritos crew is subject to a series of tests or drills to determine how well they can perform it's administered by a Starfleet consultant, Sherry Yin Yam, and I'm just going to keep calling her the drill instructor. The Lower Decks team gets command level tests, and the Cerritos command team gets Lower Decks type tests. The drills, each one of them in kind of a mini holodeck pod, offer individual tests based on situations other Starfleet crews have faced, and they're all taken from past Star Trek uh, series episodes. Mariner gets the Mirror Universe and an Old West Planet and the Naked Time. Tendi gets a medical ethics problem of a paralyzed Klingon who wants to die. Rutherford fails to stop a warp core breach and a holographic Enterprise A blows up. Everyone pretty much is rated poorly, except Boimler. He gets 79% the first time around on a drill about escaping from a board ship, but he keeps repeating the drill to do better and better each time. Mariner, Tendi, and Rutherford relaxing in the captain's ready room, because remember they're doing command level things now. They conclude that the bridge crew's jobs are harder than they thought. Meanwhile, the bridge crew doing lower decks type duty finds themselves kind of frustrated because they're completely out of the loop during a holographic Klingon attack and Q visit, things like that. The final drill is a group exercise on the actual Cerritos bridge, stealing the Cerritos from space dock to save Spock on the Genesis planet. But Captain Mariner and Ensign Freeman argue so much that the ship crashes on the inside of the holographic space dock. Captain Freeman concludes that the entire evaluation has been about building teamwork across the the groups, the bridge crew and the lower decks, but the drill instructor admits that she just set the crew up to fail. The big ships always pass her drills without problems, so she was looking for a smaller ship she could fail to prove that her job is valuable. Everyone on the ship will be reassigned, but because Boimler is still working his Borg escape exercise time and time again, the overall ship score is not finalized yet. He's reached 100% on his Borg test, but 
He has to prolong the test so Freeman can get the instructor to change the results. And things go downhill for Boimler. He ends up assimilated in the Borg holo drill. Freeman orders the ship through a series of real-life frightening encounters with things like black holes and crystal entities that she says are typical of what Starfleet ships face all the time. They terrify this relatively inexperienced drill instructor who finally promises to pass the ship if they'll just stop. The drill instructor ends up resigning due to the on-the-job stress. Freeman gives the Lower Decks team a new replicator containing all of the bridge crew's recipes, including pesto, and the ability to replicate more than one pizza slice at the same time, because now she better understands what Lower Decks team members have to go through. And that's our summary. All right. So that having been done, we'll look at some individual elements that caught our attention. Want to get us started on that? Yeah, starting with just a few, several just little things here, but the black hole that Freeman uses near the end of the episode to scare Yem, the drill instructor, looks a lot like the black hole in the Lower Decks opening credits. It isn't identical. It isn't the same scenes, but looks a lot like it, which which makes sense, I guess. Yeah, I almost feel like that was kind of planned in a way. I, I doubt that it was, but I was thinking, oh, finally, we see the uh, black hole from the opening sequence in an episode. Uh, one thing I noticed uh, was uh, Mariner here being kind of a pain to work with again. She, they learn about the drills and she says, drills, what a waste of time. I'd even take real work over this, like fake pretend work. And I just thought, gosh, you know, working with Mariner must be kind of a drag, uh, even though Rutherford and Tendi uh, still have enthusiasm for it. So she doesn't seem to be able to dampen that. And this was well reflected in in news stories about the episode, but uh, Alice Kriege, I think it's how it's pronounced, who played the Borg Queen in Star Trek First Contact, the movie, plays her again in this episode. And if you listen carefully, you can hear the same the same voice qualities. Right. We're just taking turns here, I guess. Another thing, yeah. I, uh, I this has to have been intentional, I think. Uh, do you remember Mirror Boimler's shriek? at Mariner in Mariner's Mirror Universe scenario. Yes. Didn't it look and sound an awful lot like Donald Sutherland's shriek at the end of Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the 1978 version? Yeah. Um, I think it was an intentional. Yeah, I think, I think it was a tribute to that very much so. The drill instructor, whose name I keep avoiding using, is a member of a species that was seen in the original, the animated series of Star Trek, a Patronin. Uh, is the species name. And, you know, I was wondering about that. Why put this uh, Petronian in there? And I, I think I figured it out in that animated series episode, Bem. We have that Pandronian testing the Enterprise crew, right? By taking away their phasers and communicators while they're on the surface of this unexplored planet and observing their behavior, really submitting them to tests and that's what uh, Yem does here. So it, it fits. It makes sense. So good and work, it, writers. Yeah, it's another example of a fairly deep dive to inspire the episode. So yeah, it is, it is good work. They are spending a lot of time researching the continuity. Well, this next one I want to talk about in a little bit more detail. And it was, it was clear the cards were stacked against the Cerritos crew and the drill instructor Yem but the way it works, I mean, it was a computer evaluation system. 
So the drill instructor presumably had to create criteria that the computer could judge against, judge success and failure against. And when Boimler finally says he beat the Borg queen, he, he says he, he beat her at chess. He taught her empathy to reach 100%. In a way, he's kind of telling us the criteria that was established by him, the drill instructor, to make the, the tests unrealistic. And, and of course, in the earlier rounds, he had to save Borg babies. And, mm -hmm. and then he was dragging out some of the, the adult drones, too. And some of the things in some of the other drills also seem to be pretty subjective. Mariner going through the wrong doorway in the mirror universe that lowered, lowered her rating. Uh, again, we know that these things are done to set up to fail, so we can assume that criteria wouldn't be very good. But if you sort of think about filling the backstory in your head, this drill instructor had to create these criteria intending for them to be violated to, to result in low scores. You know, I was thinking, you know, either the criteria were questionable or they were just too darn hard. And I, I was going to say something more about this later on, but um, <laughs> that Borg encounter scenario seemed somewhat impossible. It's not maybe that important to the episode, but if you, if you think about the backstory, someone created these criteria and some of the criteria didn't make very, very good sense. In the teaser, the very beginning of the episode, we see our Lower Decks crew members left behind by Cerritos when Cerritos rushes off to save another ship. And it's interesting that that situation is referenced later in the episode as evidence of the inadequacy of the California-class ships. Often right. the teasers in Lower Deck episodes aren't referenced again later. Sometimes they are, but I would say maybe two-thirds of the time it's like just an opening vignette an opening gambit or something like that that doesn't relate to the rest of the episode. So I thought it was interesting that in this case, a couple different times, it was it was referenced back to. That's a good point. Yeah, oftentimes they're just sort of like an opening joke, but this one was essential to the plot. So there was a list of simulations, actually a couple different scenes. There were a list of, of the simulations that supposedly were based on the experience of other Starfleet ships and all of them taken from past Star Trek episodes. In some cases, they're the exact titles like Evolution, Chain of Command, Cause and Effect. Th those, those I think, are all from uh, a Next Generation. Time Trap was uh, an original animated series uh, episode. We talked about that a couple of our yes. podcasts ago. In other cases, it's just a description like Tribble Troubles or Borg Encounter. And there, there is a second scene that lists some more of them. Whale Rescue extreme engineering and <laughs> teleportation death tag, whatever whatever that means. But I'm sure a lot of fans freeze-framed those scenes to, to study the list in detail. You know, I did freeze-frame that first list, but I missed the second one. I'm going to have to go back and take a look at that. One of these I did want to mention, though, the Old West Planet scenario. They didn't call it Spectre of the Gun, but it sure did look like Spectre of the Gun, didn't it? With the buildings on yeah. that street, they had the facades, but not the complete walls. Of course, we also in Next Generation had a fistful of datas in which Worf right. was the, the sheriff of Deadwood. And of course, <laughs> in Next Generation, they had more money in their budget, in their production budget. So they had they had full sets to work with, unlike Spectre of the Gun, in which I think they had to do it on just a few dollars. So, so that's why they had the surrealistic... Uh, 
old west town. And I seem to, I think maybe you and I have talked about this before, but, um, you know, I think that that worked. I mean, I, I know they had, it was low budget, but it seemed to work somehow. I liked the incomplete sets Inspector of the Gun. Yeah. They seemed to fit. Speaking of the Old West, uh, note in that scene, in that uh, uh, scenario, Mariner essentially gets stomped by a horse. But did you notice that later, it's just a quick throwaway line, her mom mentions two and a half years of horseback riding lessons that Beckett had had once upon a time, presumably as a as a child. So I thought that was a nice quip there too. Yeah. Um, Rutherford tries to use his boots to insulate his hand from the heat when going into that warp plasma chamber, which was very much based on the one where Spock died the first time. But remember when Spock did that, he had gloves. Yep. No? And it was nice just for a moment to see the Enterprise A on the screen before it exploded. Yeah. So a um, couple of couple of fun things in, in that particular drill test. The scene on the bridge, on the Cerritos Bridge, in, in which the drill instructor announces this is going to be the steal the ship from space dock scenario. There's a graphic on the, the view screen on the bridge displaying that. And it shows the Cerritos being pursued by the Excelsior away from space dock, as we saw in Star Trek, The Search for Spock. And remember, in that movie, Enterprise almost didn't get the space dock doors open in time. There was kind of a little crisis there. And in this simulation, Mariner and Freeman are arguing so much that they just forget to open them and crash. I guess in this one, Mariner and Freeman were themselves the crisis. Yeah. Later, though, we see a nice scene of mother-daughter bonding. We know that Beckett just doesn't like protocol. And here we see, she says, it's because of the constant tightrope walk of protocol. In the past, we've seen her seem to be bored by protocol. And maybe this is part of the underlying reason, the stress of complying with protocol and making it work in the real world. And I think a good commander doesn't let subordinates see that kind of stress because the, the good commander is the one who handles it and makes decisions about it. But uh, maybe that's part of what Beckett's dislike about the higher ranks and protocol is. Also, you know, there was the uh, one episode in which they were cleaning up the senior officer's quarters and Mariner made this, or no, I'm sorry, was it Mariner or Rutherford? Anyway, Ransom had some artifacts in his quarters that he wasn't supposed to have in there. And Mariner said something about how uh, Ransom wasn't following protocol. I can imagine how that could get under your skin, that somehow he can sort of get away without walking that tightrope. And yet he's always busting, you know, Mariner's butt for not following protocol, which he does again in this episode, right? Now, you know, over, over multiple episodes, we've seen kind of a them and us feeling going both directions, that the uh, the Lower Decks crew is not very happy with the bridge crew, and the bridge crew doesn't think much of the Lower Decks crew. So, you know, there is a maybe a, a longer-term story arc uh, developing there. All right. So uh, let's think about some underlying meanings here for this episode, and I think maybe I'll get us started here. I don't often read about these episodes. That is, I don't read what other folks are saying about them. But this time, I found something very interesting written by Ryan Britt on the website Inverse uh, about this Borg simulation. 
So I wanted to talk about that a bit. He makes some interesting points that, uh, first of all, Boimler doesn't get a perfect score until he leaves the cube with Borg infants, with the Borg infancy encounters. Mm -hmm. And uh, Britt points out that's because there's a moral problem with destroying Borg cubes with babies on them, (laughs) right? And I just wanted to point out again, or I haven't past podcast that adult drones are just as innocent or are innocent as just as innocent as the babies because they've been assimilated by the collective and they aren't autonomous beings anymore. So really destroying Borg cubes with anyone on them is, is morally problematic. Boimler's score continues to increase as he rescues more and more of these drones. And it increases more when he teaches the board queen empathy, remember? Right. And they need that, definitely. And I should point out, it's not always wrong to destroy board cubes. I mean, if it's necessary to protect your civilization from assimilation, then I think it's justified. But this is a nuanced take on Starfleet's ethics with respect to the Borg, which we've got, I think, first in the Picard series, right? Uh, in Picard, we get a much more nuanced view of the Borg than we got in the 1990s, right? The Borg are not villains, but they're also victims. So I, I thought that was uh, important to point that out. Mm-hmm. I think that that there's a theme in this episode. In part, it was stated in the teaser, we're all in it together. And later in the episode, Captain Freeman also expresses her discovery that taking orders while not being in the loop is more challenging than being in command. And you know, people simply do better work when they know what's going on. It reminds me of a management philosophy called servant leadership or sometimes service leadership. And in this philosophy, the leader succeeds by helping subordinates succeed, actively helping them succeed. Yes, servant leaders, they need to focus on things managers focus on strategy and goals and, and that, but they go beyond these traditional functions to give development opportunities to subordinates and and help them succeed. When subordinates understand the vision and the mission of an organization and understand how they fit in and experience success because the leadership has helped them succeed, they feel engaged and want to contribute to the organization's success. That's kind of the fundamental idea behind, Mm. behind servant leadership. Now, in Star Trek, over the years, some captains have been criticized for all the staff meetings they hold. I think Picard in particular. And, uh, of course, it's most often meetings with the regular cast members who are department heads and things. But it still means that it's not a top-down, the captain says jump and you say how high, leadership environment or, or model. So even back in Next Generation, we saw that the captain wanting to engage with the expertise of his crew members and value their contributions. The final decision still comes down to the the commander or the captain. But I think that Star Trek captains across the last 50 years have kind of been case studies of what people expect, not just from their fictional heroes, but what they expect from leadership and from management. If you were to analyze the captains in terms of which one you would most want to work for, who would be the best boss, whose subordinate you would most want to be, I wonder, I haven't done that necessarily other than kind of anecdotally in my head, but I wonder if the outcome might be different from just 
who is the best hero, who is the best leading man or, or woman. And I think part of this is the appeal we've seen in, in recent months, last couple of years of Captain Pike as portrayed by Anson Mount in Discovery. I think he probably did seem like yeah. the kind of leader a lot of people would like to work for here and now today. He listens to subordinates. I mean, he's the captain, but he will consider what they have to say. And he's not really threatened by them. Yeah. You know what I mean? I think some people in management are, are threatened when subordinates uh, ask difficult questions or make criticisms. But, you know, Pike's not like that. Yeah. Or information is power. If I tell you what's going on, then I don't have as much power. Again, that's that's a management philosophy that is not anywhere near as much fun to work under. Right. And I was thinking as you were talking, you know, I know who would not be on this list of people who you'd want to work for. And I think Lower Decks has made jokes about this on more than one occasion. Captain Jellico, right? What a nightmare. <laughs> what a nightmare yeah. that would be. Yeah. But, you know, he was brought in to the, that's a two-part episode, Chain of Command. He was brought in to be the contrast to Picard. I mean, for a storytelling point of view, that was very deliberate that they wanted him to be like the anti-Picard. And it worked <laughs> beautifully. My take on this episode is that I noticed disdain. The, the topic of this episode seemed to be disdain to me. And it runs through the episode. So we have the lower deckers, especially Mariner, uh, believing that the senior officers don't appreciate them and consider them to be expendable. And the senior officers in her defense, they do seem to have a certain amount of disdain for them. I mean, they don't get the fancy you know, menu on the replicator. They seem to consider the lower decks jobs to be beneath them. Yeah, they sleep in the hallways. And they sleep in the hallways, right? <laughs> but, right, the senior officers, they have a similar worry. They worry that Starfleet doesn't appreciate them in ships like the Cerritos. And we've seen this from the beginning. And Yem, the drill instructor in this episode, echoes this attitude as she's following Freeman through the corridors. Of course, you remember a few weeks ago, they couldn't get into the party at Starbase 25. And Yem worries that Starfleet doesn't appreciate her. She's getting this too, right? She says the bigger ships pass all of her drills and she's using her time on the Cerritos to prove the value of her drills to Starfleet so she won't lose her job. Now, I'm not defending what she did. Obviously, it's terrible, but um, she's getting this too, this sort of disdain. And as you've pointed out, you know, the drills help senior officers and lower deckers appreciate each other and the difficulty of the jobs that they have on the ship. So that's that's a good outcome. And as you point out, at each of these groups thinks that the next level above them doesn't respect them and is not treating them right. Right. And, you know, with some reason, right? I mean, after all, they, they, you know, I think the senior officers did learn something here. So it's it's not, you know, unfounded what they what they think. But, you know, I feel like, you know, viewers, a lot of viewers probably can relate to this. And so this episode seems to me to be a, a, another workplace comedy, or at least can be seen that way. And the viewers can relate to it, you know, as people who don't feel appreciated at work. I bet that's a common problem for folks. And, and but people need to be appreciated and valued by whoever is supervising them. And maybe that's the message here. 
And so as we often see, particularly in recent Star Trek, the, one of the lessons of the episode, lesson of the storyline is, is about good leadership. It's about doing it right. Right. So those are our looks at the themes. Uh, so let's just kind of talk about our final thoughts, conclusions about the episode. And Rodney, I couldn't help coming back to what we've discussed several times in recent podcast episodes, the scenes of Boimler running the Borg <laughs> simulation again and again and doing better. I mean, he did fine the first time, doing better and better each time really shows his character development. More and more, he's able to innovate and react on the fly and accomplish things he would have never been able to last season. And maybe it's just rhetoric, but Captain Freeman says he's one of their best, which kind of surprises Mariner. But he's he's yeah. doing fine work in this episode, much of the time through those scenarios. Yeah, and, he, and he's doing fine work, I think, this season also. And I was thinking, you know, he almost seems superhuman in this episode. On the other hand, he wants to do the scenario again and again and again until he gets it right. And there's something to be said for that approach, right? I guess, you know, to cite the cliche, practice makes perfect. And I mean, we as teachers, we see that too. I mean, teachers use repetition of, of tasks or similar tasks. You repeat them, you get better each time to achieve mastery. And he, he got 100%, then then got messed up and because he, he had to keep going after getting 100%. But still, you know, he showed a lot of strength and innovation and he's been doing his research. He's read everything there is to read about the Borg. So he's he's done his research in a way that he wouldn't have last season. Yeah, definitely. Mariner and Freeman incorrectly see the drills as secretly intended to be a teamwork exercise. But it turns out that what they've gone through has resulted in team building, or at least it seems to. We'll see how well it lasts. You, you did accomplish it. We see command staff and lower decks type staff uh, socializing together in the lounge, the bar. And we probably wouldn't have seen that before. They would have been more compartmentalized. Uh, so there, there may have been some benefit here. Uh, I'm sorry, but again, I have to say there are some things in poor taste in this episode, namely... Beckett's experience with the naked time drill, in which pretty much everybody she encounters is is naked. I, I should note that in the original series, the episode The Naked Time and Next Generation, The Naked Now, they didn't really have actual nudity, and naked was more of a metaphor for vulnerability, being emotionally unguarded, which is what this, whatever it was, virus or whatever it was, did. Yes, there was the one guy who was frozen in ice in the shower, who presumably didn't have clothes on, but he was covered in ice and we didn't see it. Have you ever yeah. felt like the racy humor seems juvenile? All the time. Is it, has it ever? Yeah. I think this is an example of it. I mean, you're absolutely right about the titles of those episodes. They, they don't refer to nudity and to sort of interpret them as if they do seems like a joke that a teenager would make or find funny. You know? Yeah, that kind of humor is executive producer Mike McMahon's background. But I wonder I wonder if they like did any market research on what the Star Trek audience might be looking for. Or is this an effort to attract new people that are not previously Oh right. it, it, it's hard to believe that because they have so many Easter eggs thrown in. 
True. What is what is the strategic purpose of throwing that kind of thing in? Now, the Orville started out in the first season, the first few episodes, there was a lot of juvenile humor. And there's still a little bit sprinkled through recent episodes, but they scaled it way back after the first few episodes. And they did. Just, that just, series that series got dark. Yeah. Wow. You just wonder where this kind of thing is coming from. Did they do market research? Is it just the MBAs and the studio executive staff that are making calls and telling them what they have to do? I don't know. You know, maybe it is coming from from outside. I, as a Star Trek fan, I'll, you know, I look, you know, I'm not a prude or anything, but I, I prefer my humor to be a little bit more cerebral. I don't know about you, Michael. Yeah. Or at least more subtle. Right. And it was not in this episode, not subtle. No. At all. So, I mean, I enjoyed it. There, there were a lot of fun things, uh, you know, all of the callbacks to previous episodes, previous uh, situations that we've seen over the years in Star Trek. Uh, it, it was, it was a lot of fun and seeing how the current characters responded and a couple of pretty good, solid lessons. I, I enjoyed it. And I'm with you, Michael. I like this episode. I, you know, overall, I, I enjoyed it. I'll be watching it again. Well, I think that about does it for this week. I, I think we pretty much covered the bases here. Yeah. All right. And lucky you, you've just listened to another podcast of the Star Trek Academy. We thank you for joining us again this week, and we look forward to seeing you again next week for episode nine of 10 of Lower Decks. The best way to keep track of our new episodes and any other announcements we make is our Twitter feed at Trek underscore Academy. And uh, there's a pin post there that also has links to several places. You can subscribe your podcast app or you can go directly to the website anchor.fm slash Star Trek Academy. Thank you for joining us and we will see you next week.